Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. You might have heard the term the dark web to describe the parts of the internet where cyber criminals do their work. But my next guest prefers the term cyber underground to describe the world of organized marketplaces for money mule networks, malware exploit development, and ransomware. In this episode, I speak to Mike DeBolt, who's chief intelligence officer at Intel 471, about that cyber underground and the role of threat intelligence in combating cyber threats. Mike explains the increased activity of ransomware actors and other cyber attacks, and the relation to cryptocurrency, which seems to have become the de facto means of payment in the cyber underground. The discussion emphasizes the importance of collaboration between the public and private sectors in disrupting cyber criminal networks and the emerging risks associated with ransomware and third-party vendors. Now, before you dive into the episode, we also have some breaking news. Chainalysis has just published our Global Cryptocurrency Adoption Index, and Central and Southern Asia are leading the way in grassroots crypto adoption. I know that may be a little bit of a spoiler, but there's pages more of interesting crypto adoption typologies from around the world that can be found in the report. Head down to the show notes after you listen to the episode to read the first of a series of blog posts we've published on the Global Crypto Adoption Index and other key takeaways. On this podcast, we talk a lot about underworld, cyber criminals, the dark web. I always feel like I don't know enough on this subject. So for today's episode, I'm joined by Mike DeBolt, who's got maybe the best title that we've ever had on the show, Chief Intelligence Officer at Intel 471. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I have to ask, Chief Intelligence Officer, what do you actually do? I was uh, trying to go for Intelligence Czar, Mm. but... uh, that didn't fly. So we stuck with chief intelligence officer. So I'm on the exec team here at Intel 471. And I have the, the privilege and the honor to, to lead our over 80 person intelligence function. So I have researchers, technical specialists, collection managers who engage directly with our clients. And we have an analyst team as well. So they all combine into this one awesome team that I get to lead every day. Talk a little bit about, for people that haven't encountered Intel 471 before, what the actual business is. And then we're going to go, I think, much deeper into the technical side. But what do customers look to you to provide them? So we make it our business to track cyber threat actors on the ground. And so by that, I mean we are intimately familiar with who the main players are operating in the underground, what services they offer, the infrastructure they use, the malware they use, the attack vectors they employ. And because we painstakingly (laughs) map this space out, we are able to provide all these really timely and relevant insights, intelligence to our customers. And I like to say that we're essentially our customers' eyes and ears into a, a very vibrant and active and kind of hard to reach space that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. One of the ongoing challenges that most organizations have when they start to think about the underground is like where to start. How do I know if something is important to me? There's all of these different actor handles, all these different forums, instant messaging platforms. There's a lot going on and there's a lot to sift through. So, you know, we make it our business not to just become intimately familiar with who the bad guys are, but then we also take that next step to reduce the noise by stacking and ranking and categorizing what's what's the most important. And we distill those insights into something that our customers can action or operationalize to protect themselves. So this could be, just to give you an example, it could be anything from our assessment of the most common MITRE attack techniques that are being used out there. 
like by initial access brokers, because that's a big thing right now. Or it could be one of our sensitive sources that we have that have gained initial access into a, or gained access into a closed chat group. And we're observing in real time credible threat actors who are talking about you know, their next attacks against an organization who happens to be one of our clients or one of their third parties. And then, so then we have a platform that our customers log into and they access these insights. And, you know, my team is always working behind the scenes to infiltrate hard to reach places, identify trends, and ultimately pass that information along to our clients who represent multiple industries and geographies, both in the private and the public sector. I was going to ask, most of your customers, I would assume, are, are chief information security officers, the people protecting their organization from, from these cyber threat actors, or is it other people too? Most of our, our clientele is going to be cyber threat intelligence teams. You know, obviously the cyber threat intelligence team, if it's doing their job, they're reporting to this the CISO, yeah. either directly or through their chain of management. So yeah, that's primarily our client place, our bread and butter. It's the cyber threat intelligence team. I mentioned at the outset that this is this has become an interesting area for me because as I've gotten further into the world of cryptocurrency, cybercrime and crypto have become increasingly intertwined over time. Like the payment for information and access is now done in crypto. Ransomware, obviously, which is, is a hot topic seemingly nonstop for the last few years. Ransom payments being made in crypto. Is that consistent with your observation as well? Is crypto now the de facto means of of, of payment for services uh, in the cyber threat actor world? Oh yeah, hands down. We've seen some interesting trends, you know, on the heels of these centralized exchanges that have been been taken down or, or sanctioned. But by far, you know, actor threat actors are using cryptocurrency to facilitate their ill-gotten gains and to profit. We, a couple of interesting things. We've seen some of these centralized gray market exchanges as kind of a knee-jerk reaction to these sanctions and these takedowns attempt to seem legitimate and avoid scrutiny by, you know, they'll have a website that states that their services are not being used for illicit purposes. And they're actually, you know, creating a social media presence and a clear web presence, making it look like everything is fine and there's nothing going on here. But, you know, at the same time with our access and our visibility, we're seeing that these same services, these exchanges are being advertised like a lot in the cybercrime forums. So I think they're going to get discovered pretty quickly. This yeah. is just a veiled attempt at them trying to make themselves look legitimate in the face of some of these sanctions that are coming down. Realizing that we have a wide range of, of technical expertise and experience in, in our listeners, maybe we could take just a step back. And when we talk about the dark web, what actually is that? I actually had somebody ask me the other day, they're like, hey, is the dark web still a thing? Are there still people out there operating on the dark web? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. But we talk, you know, you've mentioned forums and initial access brokers mm -hmm. and Contextualize this a little bit for somebody that's maybe never used Tor or an Onion browser or something like yeah. that. Like, what are we really talking about here? I, I have to be careful here because anytime somebody says dark web or deep web to me, I cringe a little bit. Oh, good. I didn't even know. So I, I, I'm not up with <laughs> maybe, the lingo. Maybe I should have warned you. So here's the deal. It's not dark. It's not deep. It's actually really well organized, this cybercrime underground. And so here's what I would say. I would say the best way to conceptualize the cyber underground is by looking at it through a business lens. Just like any legitimate market, the cyber underground economy exists because of supply and demand. That's pretty obvious. There's a ready, you know, readily available supply of illicit products, services, goods that enable and they prop up this ecosystem. And that's because there's a steady demand from buyers all around the world, uh, across all maturity spectrums that are seeking these things to further their profit, profitability and their money-making schemes. 
And this runs for us in what we're focused on, it runs the gamut of cybercrime. So think about things like phishing, money mule networks, malware exploit development, and of course, ransomware, as you already mentioned. So if you think about it from a business lens and this whole supply and demand reality that we live in, this comes with go-to-market competition. It comes with the need for brand recognition and innovation and partnerships and quality assurance, customer service. We even saw with some of the Conti ransomware leaks that happened a while ago, threat actors standing up human resources to help manage payroll for their, their threat actors. So, so that's on the supplier side, but then you have on the consumer or the buyer side who are coming into this ecosystem you know, if I'm a buyer or a consumer, I really have access to whatever I need. Whether I'm a, like I said, a newcomer actor who's trying to learn the ropes and maybe upskill myself, or I'm a mature actor who is coming into the space looking to form partnerships to expand my portfolio or increase my bona fides. It really has everything for anyone, regardless of maturity, looking to conduct all different types of cyber criminal activities. And so all of this really creates what I would consider a gold mine for intelligence collection, where we can you know, establish coverage over this space. We can really become intimately familiar, acutely familiar with who the big players are right now. And then we can sort of monitor this as we go and identify where the state changes are and be alert to what's coming next. Who are the next guys who are coming in and being the big, big dogs on the block, right? Yeah, I think to contextualize it even a little further, there was a, a trending article that I caught in one of the newsletters I read every day that said, right now, there is an increasing trend on phishing attacks using wallet theft software. So you connect your crypto wallet to a website and it will basically sweep the contents out of the site. So semi-sophisticated attack, but all the tools necessary to do that are available for hire, right? You basically buy a, a kit and anybody with a basic technical knowledge could, could stand this up. And what the article was suggesting was that most of the people who are running these scams right now are actually teenage kids who are then using the proceeds of the stolen NFTs and crypto mm -hmm. to buy skins and Roblox. And so you've got that as one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we saw like the Hydra Darknet marketplace that got taken down last year. I mean, they billions of dollars in annual revenue doing everything from money laundering to selling, you know, guns and drugs and stolen documents and everything else you could imagine imagine really a full service marketplace like you would think of as any other large scale e-commerce platform on the internet. That's the, the range of, of user and activity sophistication you've got happening here, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can't focus on everything, right? It's impossible. Yeah. What is the term? You, know, you can't boil the ocean, right? So, you know, we spend a lot of time just really trying to identify, well, first of all, categorize the threat. Are we talking about an infrastructure provider? Are we talking about a, a service provider? Is this a phishing as a service, right? And we sort of use to help steer our efforts. What is the impact that these services are having? How are they enabling the vast majority of cybercrime to occur? And then so, you know, once you have your stacked ranked list of things that are ultimately, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, but ultimately there are only, you know, maybe a, a handful, if you just separate each one of these threats into their categories, a handful of really prominent services across this, this space that are really enabling the vast majority of cybercrime to happen. So once you kind of understand 
understand that space um, and understand who the actors are behind it, what their motivations are, what their intent is, what their capabilities are, then you can start to get a, at least a, a starting point into protecting yourself against them. So you're not having to feel the overwhelming weight of having to protect yourself against everything. I often think about this challenge in the context of, you know, what's my threat profile, either as an individual or uh, as a company chainalysis, like how much appetite and interest would somebody have in attacking us? And for some reason, I categorize maybe nation state actors is slightly different than the profit seeking run of the mill cyber criminals. Is that a reasonable way to, to kind of segment behavior and motivation there? Or is it really a blurry line between somebody that's employed by a a government and those that are maybe maybe more profit motivated over the years over you know probably the last 10 years or so we've seen that line blurred quite a bit um, and it makes sense right if you're a nation-state threat actor who's working at the behest of your government you know, certainly there's going to be some unique tooling and unique infrastructure that you're going to use that's much more sophisticated. But then there's also, as you said, I mean, there's a plethora of off-the-shelf tools, commodity stuff that you can use to, in this underground that can help you hide in the noise, if you will, so that you can look as though you're coming from, you, you're just another financially motivated threat actor. And so sometimes we see them peek their head above the ground and we're able to sort of say, okay, well, that's probably some, you know, an actor who is maybe not working at the direct tasking of a government, but is certainly motivated or aligned with a government's intentions. And so those are interesting. But I would say you mentioned, the, you know, your sort of threat profile, you know, what do you focus on as an organization? I think one of the things that we don't do ourselves a, serv a good service on in the threat intel side is that we often conflate risk with threat. So, you know, you could have the most sophisticated threat out there, the most sophisticated APT actors who are very, very active and persistent, but that might not actually be a risk to your organization at that given time. Maybe it's because they're targeting a certain vertical or a certain geography that your organization isn't in. And so you kind of see where you have a sophisticated and persistent threat, but that is not going to immediately you know, equate to a, a risk that you have to action in your organization. So, you know, just being conscious of your risk profile within your organization, being conscious of, you know, what are your crown jewels and what are you actually trying to protect? And then looking at the threat side, you know, being aware of what the threats are out there, obviously, but also what are they targeting right now and in the future is really going to help organizations assess their, their actual true risk. This is a great point, but it seems really difficult, you know, in like the current moment where we have this rash of ransomware, the move it vulnerability. And it looks like, you know, people who were school districts, county government offices, like state and local kind of municipal functions, not organizations that I would think of as having deep pockets and therefore able to pay the ransomware fee or, or necessarily having like a cyber insurance policy that's going to pay out. Now, maybe they're soft targets and that they just aren't that sophisticated on the defensive side, but it does seem a little bit like the target selection is almost a little bit random. Maybe you have more insight in, in either this specific case or the general one about how does that, someone end up in that situation? I think we got to be careful here. This particular move it vulnerability exploitation was a mass exploitation exercise on, on behalf of CLOP. 
And so it was, as you said, it was very opportunistic. They're looking across across the internet for movement, you know, vulnerabilities, and then really taking advantage of that. And then it's been an interesting change of technique for them to use, you know, emails to basically say, if you're one of the victims, email us, and then we'll start the negotiation. That's different from them actually deploying ransomware on their on the victim machine, and then uh, a ransom note popping up, and them, you know, directing a negotiation through a Tor channel. It was a different technique. And I think it's just because of the nature of the vulnerability that was exploited. But I mean, outside of that kind of corner case, the essence of what you're talking about is true. I mean, financially motivated actors just in general are opportunistic. You certainly have the more sophisticated actors and the groups out there that are are targeted in the, in the sense that they know what they're after, uh, whether it's an industry or maybe it's a victim demographic that they're only going to go after victims that have an annual revenue of 500 million or more. I'm just making that up, but they have certain parameters that they're going to use to help, you know, prioritize what they're going to be dropping ransomware on or ultimately attacking. But but the vast majority of cybercrime actors out there are opportunistic. They're going to take whatever they can, whenever they can. And so then for people who are trying to protect their organization, whether it's uh, running a cryptocurrency exchange or, you know, a Fortune 500 enterprise, like what are the tactics that you would suggest they focus on? You know, what's what's the important stuff versus the noise that they can kind of safely skip past when it comes to to not ending up in the the cover of the newspaper as a victim of one yeah, of these big rants? I, I suppose you're not gonna let me off the hook by me saying allowing me to say it depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so, going to give you that much uh, rope, <laughs> that but, much rope. Okay. but obviously it's, it's a broad and open-ended question. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious if you've got some particular insight, just given how close you and your team are to some yeah. of the operators, if there's any tactics you can recommend. So, I mean, let, let's talk about the good news a little bit, and I'll take a step back here. Yeah. Information sharing between like-minded governments is at an all-time high, and I think we need to celebrate that. And also between the private and public sectors as well. I mean, for the longest time, the public sector, and I can... I can say this because I originally came from this space, okay? The public sector was disillusioned to, to think that we can basically solve everything on our own and impose costs on the bad guy single-handedly, you know, without the help of private sector. And so while, yes, the government has access to information that the private sector doesn't, the inverse is also true. The private sector, you know, specialized vendors like us and Chainalysis and, and others, we have subject matter experts and we have visibility into hard to reach places. So, you know, this creates a really excellent opportunity for both sides to share intel, uh, work together. And, you know, we're seeing more and more tangible benefit and outcomes from these takedowns and these, these arrests. And I, I think this is going to continue and, and become even more frequent. So, but the other side to this is yes, the, the cyber underground is resilient. It has many overlapping interdependent services. It has multiple forms, chats that actors can move in and through with relative ease. And really, if any of these go down, it's only a matter of time before its replacement comes online to fill the void. So I think what this means for us is that we have to sort of shift our success criteria for what it means to disrupt an actor. You know, the ultimate disruption is going to to be taking something down for good. I think no one's going to argue about that. Whether that's an actor themselves being arrested or their infrastructure being dismantled, but you know, this happens few and far between. So what I would say is let our disruption goal be anything that makes the actor divert from their original plan. Anything that imposes cost. We really want to keep the actor on the run. We want to keep them uncomfortable, second guessing. We want to keep them off target, not on target. So, 
you know, this could be going back to your original question. This could be a, you know, a set of small incremental controls in your environment, something like MFA, multi-factor authentication. I know that's simple, but that's effective. Um, it could be blocking a network range being used by the actor. Or for us at Intel 471, it could be something simple, but effective, like using one of our sources to engage the actor, cast maybe a little bit of subtle doubt in their operations, <laughs> right? So the... These are very small. These are very tactical things. Maybe they're not going to reach the headlines, right? They're not going to be on CNN or anything like that. And they're not going to maybe have huge amount of individual impact, but in aggregate, they amount to enough impact that the actor is going to look for something a little bit more lower hanging, a little bit more opportunistic. So I think, yeah. you know, let's continue to focus on the big takedowns. Don't get me wrong. We definitely need to do that, but also stay diligent, stay in the weeds and on the small things and make things harder for those actors to, to achieve their goals. It sounds like you're saying, hey, you know, defense alone is not enough. We've got to take the opportunity to play offense. That's right. And that's not purely the role of, of government. It actually requires collaboration between public and private sector, between industry, between the companies who are the ultimate victims in many of these cases. If that collaboration is not happening, we're just making it too easy for the bad guys to be successful. That's right. And being really good at prioritizing what's going to actually move the needle to help defend ourselves because we can't, yeah. it's just not possible to protect against everything. So knowing what's most important at any given time, what's most impactful, and then designing your controls and your detections off of that is, is, is going to move the needle for us. So let's talk about some of these takedowns because, you know, there's been some notorious darknet markets that I think most people have probably heard of going back to Silk Road, probably the one first one that really got on outside of the the uh, experts in, in cybersecurity kind of on their radar. You know, last year we saw the takedown of the Hydra marketplace. Alpha Bay is another one that probably some people have heard of. When one of these takedowns happen, what is actually being done? Because often it doesn't seem like p individuals are necessarily arrested sometimes. Sometimes it's just infrastructure seizure. Like, can you, you know, maybe walk us through one of those specifically or in, in a more general context? Like, what does a, a takedown of a marketplace entail? Yeah, well, some are cleaner than others, you know, in the sense that everything is taken down. The actor is arrested. The infrastructure is taken down. You know, obviously we had that ha happen with Silk Road. Um, and, and other times, you know, especially for the perpetrators being in hard to reach places who don't cooperate with U.S. or Five Eye law enforcement, you know, it's a matter of taking down the infrastructure momentarily, um, while also, like I said, imposing costs on the bad guy who happens to be sitting in a place where we can't put cuffs on, and then really everything in between. I think the way I would answer that is that those are all success stories, and and a lot of this is actually happening behind the scenes. You know, I'm in a lot of trust groups. I hear a lot of onesie twosie type disruption activities that the cybersecurity industry is imposing on the bad guy. And it might take down a domain or it might take down a, a piece of infrastructure momentarily. Of course, that's not going to go into the news and it might not even be actioned by law enforcement. It might be somebody in the private sector doing that. To me, that's a, that's a success. And over time, if you continue to do that, you continue to cast doubt in the actor's oper operations. Maybe they move to a new technique that is a little bit more risky for their operations because you've, you know, you've sort of caused them to make that move and cause them to be uncomfortable. So I would say, let's continue to look at every single opportunity we can to make things harder for, for the bad actors. Well, and I think this is where, you know, the partnership between our two companies starts to get interesting. Because if I'm thinking about offensive activities to disrupt criminal networks, you know, not just in the cyber domain, there's 
almost always an element of follow the money, right? If you, if you can either, you know, take the criminal's money or disrupt the flow of, of funds going to them, you can make a big dent in their operation. You can either make it unappealing for them to continue in the venture or or more than that. And so knowing that everybody is in is using crypto, it's the de facto way to exchange funds between between these organizations. That is such an interesting vector for, for exploiting uh, weaknesses in their networks. I mean, we've seen with a number of the Russian ransomware gangs, they were using a common money line laundering operation that yeah. Treasury Department ended up sanctioning. But I mean, this these folks had cleaned a few hundred million dollars worth of ransomed crypto. And so I think this is where the intelligence gathering work you're doing, combined with the on-chain intelligence that we're able to produce, is such a powerful set of capabilities for, for organizations that are trying to go on offense here. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's all about the money. You know, I might be a little you know, optimistic here, or maybe a little naive, but I, I don't believe that anything is untouchable. I don't believe that anything is immune to disruption in the cybercrime ecosystem. I think it's just a matter of us, the good guys, positioning ourselves in a way where we can see those those wallet ad addresses, where we can see those IDs. And then, like you already said, Intel Force M1 and chain, chain analysis, like we're already doing, working very closely together to action those when we do see them. And then follow, you know, pull on that thread and follow what they're doing and pivoting from there and painting a really clear, comprehensive picture about you know, who these actors are and what we can do to really put their funds at risk. Because you're right, this once their funds are at risk, it changes the game for them. And so if we can create that chaos for them, all the better. And I think for people that are in, you know, either the investigative or the compliance space, this is why you're so important to this equation. You may not think of yourself as a, a cyber investigator or a cyber defender, but the reality is all that money flowing through this threat actor ecosystem, ultimately they want to cash it back out to some mm -hmm. hard currency. You know, these days it's increasingly few and far between exchanges that will allow, you know, anonymous accounts, particularly those that can cash out back to a fiat source. That's where compliance teams, understanding where these funds are coming from, being able to understand, oh, this looks linked to ransom payments or it looks linked to darknet market activity, like shutting that off and not allowing it to, to transit through a platform. It mm -hmm. has a direct upstream impact on this ecosystem. Actors are going to, they're, I'll give them this, they're, they can be innovative. They can be creative. I already mentioned, you know, and that's not me giving credits to the bad guy, by the way. So don't edit this and, and <laughs> <laughs> that's our pull quote right there. <laughs> yeah, <use> okay. <laughs> I can just see the headlines, but you know, like I said earlier, one of the interesting trends that we're seeing is this movement to um, instant messaging chat platforms to do peer to peer trades, telegram, but to a lesser extent discord. And so, you know, this was something that we saw before all of this, you know, the sanction activity and the actions against these centralized exchanges. But we definitely saw an uptick in actors, you know, once these sanctions and their and their their funds were at risk, really recognizing, hey, maybe I need to be doing something different so I can protect my money laundering operations and, and be able to cash out ultimately. So now they're using these chat platforms to trade crypto assets directly with another threat actor that, you know, there's a whole vetting program. There's, you know, you can pay to be a VIP, you know, so there's a, a little bit of a, tr I'm using trust in the bunny quotes here. There's a little bit of a trust there, but it's also done with some sense of relative 
anonymity and threat actors like that. So and we've also seen a handful of these service, services support transfers between crypto into local currency like Russian rubles that can be deposited and then cashed out via great bank transfers and ATM withdrawals. So they're, you know, they're always going to find a way, right? And, it, and our job is really to, if we can get there before them, that's great. It's not always going to be that case, but at least we're tracking them moment by moment, real time so that we can set up coverage, automated coverage uh, is what we do. We, we set up automated coverage of these chat platforms, but we also have human sources as well that go in and they engage with with these threat actors so that we can watch their activity. We understand what they're doing um, so that they don't go completely unnoticed. I have to ask those human operators that you have doing intelligence collection and, and kind of undercover, what is the profile of one of those people? Like, you know, where do you recruit your team from? If I wanted to become one of these people, because the job sounds kind of interesting, like what sort of skills do I need to have? Well, you can check our career page if you're interested. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. So, <laughs> so these are, remember I said earlier, we our bread and butter is really our on the ground research that we do, our on the ground coverage of threat actors. Yeah, we have a platform and we do automated coverage across this space too. So our clients can see alerting and, and that's really important because we can't capture everything. But really the in-depth detailed research and insights come from these these researchers. And so the, the DNA of these researchers are really across the board. A lot of them come from former law enforcement, former security services, some academia, industry, cybersecurity industry. And what they all have in common is they each have native language proficiency in the places that we have them that are a very close proximity to the threat actors that we are tracking. So we have you know, Eastern European teams, we have South America teams, we have a team in, in the Far East. So they have native language proficiency and they also understand the cultural aspect of their intelligence collection. You know, I always say when I'm talking to people who maybe are getting introduced to this first is that I certainly can't walk into a Hell's Angels bar in California <laughs> looking like this. I'm going to get spotted pretty quickly and probably kicked out. You know, it's the same as somewhat true in the cyber underground. In order to get into these closed, vetted places, you have to, in a lot of cases, you have to know somebody, you certainly have to be able to speak the language and also know the nomenclature and the slang. And so that's that's the type of people that we have really uh, in the weeds and on the ground tracking these threat actors. That's amazing. And so do you get some of those people who come in without technical knowledge? Or do you also have to find people that have everything you just said, as well as being some level of depth into cybersecurity? Yeah, I would say that the team is quite diverse. We have people who have both, certainly native yeah. language proficiency, and they've been doing this for a long time, and they just understand more of the technical aspects of how you know malware works and uh, infrastructure and all of those things. But then we have people who come from academia who have that, you know, are really, really sharp, but they have the native language proficiency. We also have a, a dedicated linguist team, a linguist analysis team that's built a dictionary over the past eight years and uh, reference that every once in a while. You know, English speakers who need a, a, a translation assist every once in a while can go back and say, okay, well, that that's what that means. And that's what that means. So those are people who come very, very smart, who speak multiple languages, but they don't have necessarily the subject matter expertise uh, in the cybercrime world right when we first bring them on board. And they just learn that and we teach them that. Such a fascinating job, very different than my my day job and one that seems pretty exciting. We've had obviously a ton of global disruption over the last few years from the pandemic to now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Like when these major global events happen, what do you see changing, if, if anything, in the behavior of some of the threat actors that you're following? So ultimately we haven't seen a major lasting decline 
in cyber criminal activity since since the invasion started. I mean, most of the impact has been seen as a result of the things that we've been talking about, really the sanctions work being done going after those Ill illegitimate exchanges and then actors trying to figure out what they're going to do next. We have seen a few interesting kind of corner cases where certain Russian language threat actors have been called up to fight on the front lines. And then we've never seen or heard from them again. I guess case case solved there. Back during COVID, we saw a handful of actors we were tracking that claimed that they had fallen ill and had taken a short break. There was one time where we had an actor reference another actor that they had been doing business with that he died. He or she died from COVID. You know, on the one hand, we're not seeing any major trending impact, good or bad, on the cybercrime ecosystem as a result of some of these major events. But, it, you know, it's a reminder that we're dealing with actual human beings here who are affected by real life environmental factors. And this is something that we at Intel 471 are always tuned into. And we try to use that to our advantage when it comes to rapport building, intelligence collection opportunities, and everything in between. I have to imagine that you all are also a target yourselves, right? Like you, you have a brand, you're not secretive company, you're on the podcast here. So you're out there. Has there ever been any, any retali retaliation or folks trying to target you directly? Yeah, I mean, we get the normal stuff. We get the phishing campaigns. There hasn't been anything that's been super targeted against us. And it's actually kind of surprising. So, um, you know, we do take a great deal of care into what we do communicate. In all seriousness, what we do communicate in, in our blogs and in things like, you know, engagements like this, because we do operate in an interesting gray area and we want to make sure that we pr we're protecting ourselves as well. And our clients, for that matter, we you know take a great deal of care, in making sure that we don't skyline our our customers or anybody, any partners or anything that we're working with. I would imagine that your trusted relationships with all your customers would be kind of the valuable asset that if you know a threat actor might get interested in. But you all recently published something called the Cyber Underground Handbook. Talk to us about that. What's that asset? Who should go read it? Yeah. So the Cyber Underground Handbook is something, it's actually been around for a little while. What it is, is it's a, a handy reference tool for really CTI professionals who are looking to either refine their cyber threat intelligence program or build one from the ground up. So I would encourage anybody who is, you know, really looking to advance their program using a requirements driven approach. So maybe you have you know, more than three stakeholders within your organization that you as the Intel team need to service or provide Intel for, and you're having a hard time kind of prioritizing. This is a very, very common thing. And even something that we dealt with at Intel 471 when I first came on board is how do we prioritize all of our customers' needs and our stakeholders' needs? And so this is one way, this handbook, using general Intel requirements to help you sort of get started with that aspect of it. We also do a, a workshop every quarter. I actually do it uh, with one of our awesome folks here at, on my team and we run through kind of how to operationalize that handbook. So I'd encourage you to take a look. We'll link to both in the show notes so that folks can find that and have a way to progress out of this conversation if they're in the early stages of developing their own program. Last question as we wrap the discussion, you know, it feels like it's been a busy year. You know, Genesis Marketplace got taken down and then came back to life. Move it that we talked about earlier, the, the big ransomware attack that's ongoing right now. I would have to imagine you're actually probably seeing a little bit ahead of what everyone's experiencing in the market where you're you're maybe thinking about things that are really only going to become apparent a few months down the line. What's keeping your attention right now as much as you can share? And perhaps what would you encourage people to direct some of their attention to as, as they look out on the horizon? I will say that predictive analysis 
assessing what's coming next and making a high confidence sort of forecast is, is always the holy grail of Fred Intel. And it's not always possible. It's like the hardest thing to do, right? So we're always staying really close to the ground floor when it comes to what our, what our customers are saying is important. And then we also cross-reference that against what we're seeing from our vantage point. You know, ransomware is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately. So that, of course, continues to be an important topic to cover down on. But one thing I think that really seems to be on everyone's mind and for good reason is the third party vendor supplier risk challenge. This is something that we talk about really every day at Intel Force M1. And we talk about it internally. We talk about it with our, our clients. And we have a, a couple of Intel streams that help our clients get a handle on this. But it this remains a challenge in our very interconnected world of supply chains and you know vast amounts of data circulating everywhere without really any control. So this is something that we're going to focus on continually in the coming weeks and the in months ahead, tactically, strategically. You know how can we get relevant third-party insights like breaches and alerts into the hands of customers in a matter that um, enables you know, quick action and helps them reduce their attack surface. Securing the software supply chain seems like the problem of our age right now. It's just, there's so much software deployed. The complexity of that software is greater than it's ever been. There's so much open source software. So you have you know teams building software that you buy maybe or run as a service, and they've pulled in upstream dependencies from open source packages, which in some cases they may not understand or may not be maintaining effectively. And so you have these like third and fourth layer kind of hidden dependencies that may be not at all visible or even testable from you know the consumer point of view, the end user standpoint. And it doesn't seem like there's an easy answer here. It almost requires sort of everyone to up their game across the board, like any weak point in the entire food chain becomes a exploitable vulnerability. So and, and not to pile on to the the issue, but you know, we're we're tracking hundreds and, and hundreds of breaches from the cybercrime underground. And that could be anything from a, a ransomware, you know, leak blog mentioning a victim to initial access brokers whose sole job, this whole sub economy of actors who their their own only job is to go find network accesses to remote access points like VPNs and RDP. And they go and they turn around and they sell that or they'll work directly with a ransomware group that they've made a relationship with. And so the exhaust of that is that we have hundreds of these breaches impacting hundreds of unique victims. You know, how do you, you know, how do you wrap your mind around whether one of one or one of those victims are a third party vendor or supplier of yours and how do you do it in a manner that's streamlined and you're not having to sift through everything so those are the challenges that we're facing right now and, and what we have a really good handle on it and we're enabling that kind of support for our customers but like i said earlier the bad guys are always innovating and i think we need to be uh, always doing the same thing and staying one step ahead michael keep up the good work we all need you out there on the on the front lines of this you and your team this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate the time today. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X, aka Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis on any of those platforms. This episode probably has you interested more in the cyber underground and ransomware. So you might be interested to know that as of September 7th, the United States and the United Kingdom have sanctioned an additional 11 members of the Russia-based ransomware group 
TrickBot. The TrickBot cybercrime groups behind the deployment of several ransomware strains, which have been responsible for at least $833 million worth of cryptocurrency extortion throughout their lifespans. While Bitcoin payments continue to be the instrument of choice for ransomware actors, it turns out that processing illicit transactions on an immutable public ledger can be an asset to counter cybercrime. If you want to find out more about these additional sanctions on the continuous crackdown of Russia-based ransomware groups, head down to the show notes and click the link to read the full story.